Hello, and welcome to this week's podcast of Torah Chaim. My name is Elchanan Cohen, and this is my wife, Miriam Cohen. And this is the Torah Chaim podcast, where we take a look at the weekly Torah portion and try and gain a better understanding of it, particularly in light of world events, try and apply the messages of the weekly Torah portion to our lives, which is the concept of Torah Chaim, instructions for living, and as well try and use what happens in our life for a deeper understanding of the Parsha. Um, and with that in mind... Before we start, I would like to say that uh, we hope that you're enjoying the Torah Chaim podcast, um, and we hope that you can help us spread the word. So you can do so by giving us a rating on um, Apple Podcasts or wherever you watch your... Um, I mean, sorry, listen to your podcast. Um, you can give us a rating, a review. Um, but more importantly, if you enjoy the Taurus Chaim podcast, um, you can discuss it at Shabbos table or um, anytime you're talking to people, you can post a link to it in a WhatsApp chat or on your social media. Um, and lastly, we really enjoy getting feedback from those of you who are listening and enjoying. We really strive to make the podcast a priority, even in a busy week, to make it to get it done for you, our listener. So please continue to send the feedback. You can reach out to me on Instagram um, at Overtime Cook or my husband at Alchanan, although he may not be so active. So you're probably better off <laughs> reaching out to me. Okay. And um, just in that vein, I um, want to thank my mother-in-law for her important input into last week's okay. uh, last week's podcast. There was a, a very important uh, noted mistake, um, and that is the Septuagint, which we discussed last week, was not a translation into 70 languages, as I said at the time, but rather a translation into Greek by means of 70 sages, and that's where the number 70 came in. So thank you very much for that correction, and if you notice any other corrections, feel free to mention them, forward them, etc. Believe it or not, we are humans. Yes, we do make <laughs> mistakes. Uh, well, I, I would say do. more often than not, but okay. <clears throat> so, um, there was something that we mentioned last week, uh, which I'd, I'd like to take at least a couple minutes this week to address, um, and uh, does have to do with the particular time of year. Um, so, we did mention last week that we have entered into a period of, of the year that is known among certain circles as the Shovavim period. The word Shovavim in Hebrew is, the, is an acronym for Shemos, or it could be an acronym for Shemos, Va'era, Bo, Bishalach, Yisro, Mishpatim, which are the first six parshios um, of... Sefer Shemos, uh, and in fact, this year we get an extra show, what's known as Shovavim Tat, which is adding two tufts onto the end, because that is Truma and Titzave. And because during it's a leap year, because it's a leap year, yes. And um, and during this time period, there are many different customs, uh, some of which uh, maybe we'll discuss. Um, but I'd like to kind of get a general idea for the time period and why it's seen as a, uh, a special time. Um, so I'm going to take kind of a little bit of a different route, perhaps, than uh, is necessarily typically taken. And we started to discuss this, you and I, a little bit, inshallah, um, should his time uh, last week. Yeah. Um, so I, I'd like to take an approach based on the lavush. So the Lavush, who's one of the commentaries on Shulchan Aruch, actually, interestingly, uh, he, Rav Mordechai Yafe, um, was actually originally not a big fan of the Shulchan Aruch and sort of wrote his Sefer um, as a, not rebuttal, but as an alternative, I guess, okay. wouldn't be a way of putting it. Um, that being said, uh, he mentions... The following. So there's a custom during this period of time for people to fast. 
Um, and specifically, by the way, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but specifically on Thursdays, there is... Yeah, my father the, used to fast <clears> and show them. Uh, every day of the week or just on Thursdays? Thursday. Just on Thursdays. Yeah. Okay. Because there are different there are different customs in this regard. Um, this week, it actually becomes very problematic, if that is your custom, um, because it is Rosh Chodesh on oh. Thursday. Um, and so actually, there are those who have the custom this week, if you're not going to be able to fast on Thursday, to do it on one of the earlier days, perhaps on Monday okay. of this week. Um so he mentions that the custom was to fast on Thursdays, and he explains the custom in the following way. He says that they noticed <clears throat> that during this time of the year, uh, it was very common for women who were expectant to miscarry. Um, I, I have a theory about this. I don't know this to be the case. Um, I, I do remember when I was younger, my mother had, I, I don't know the details of it, but she had a theory um, about uh, women who um, develop uh, the flu during their pregnancy and how it can uh, affect the child. Um, but um, that is what's going around right now. The flu does go around this time of year. Um, and I, it would not surprise me to find out that certainly in times when um, medicine was not in the place that we find it today, um, that it could have had profound effects on pregnant women um, who tend to be, um, at least from a, um, from a immune perspective, a little more vulnerable um, to, to disease. Anyhow, so he mentions that when they noticed that, they instituted that people should fast. And this is a somewhat um, common Jewish custom. It was more, more common, you know, in, in previous ages, but that, you know, due to difficult circumstances, people would fast as a way of, uh, as a merit or as a, an expression of prayer. And the, he actually mentions that the reason why they would specifically fast on Thursdays is because on Thursdays is when the bracha of Peru Urvu, of be fruitful and multiply, is mentioned in the Torah for the first time, because on day five of creation is the day in which the birds and the fish were created, and they were given the blessing to be fruitful and multiply. And so corresponding to this idea of fertility or fecundity um, and having children, and since the problem was women who were expectant to have children, um, so therefore the custom was to fast specifically on, uh, on Thursdays. Uh, he also notes that if you take a look in last week's Parsha, we have Ubenei Yisrael and the Jewish people, Paru Vayishritzu Vayirbu Vayatmu B'Ma'od Ma'od. We have the first mention of the Jewish people being fruitful and multiplying. And so therefore, he explains that that's why they established it to begin in Parshas Shemos. Um, but I, I'd like to kind of go along that track, but maybe take a little bit of a different one um, or... or or slight, slight adjustment. And that is the following. You know, there's an interesting phenomenon. Uh, do you know what the month that is most popular for birthdays is? I do. It's January. Yes. No. Sorry, September. Sorry. Not, not January. Thank you. <laughs> September. <laughs> there we go. There's a mistake. Um, yes, it is September, my my birth, birth month, um, and the birth month of many of my siblings. Um, and um, there's uh, a very... Um, simple, perhaps, reason for why September is the most common month for birthdays. And that is, September um, is nine months after what? January. Well, nine months after January 1st, specifically, New Year's. Um, yeah, uh, that's one one thing. But also, January, in the end of December, the beginning of, the January, of January, is the heart of winter. And as our... Uh, forecast at this moment um, of rain pouring down on the roof. <laughs> it uh, could be a lot worse. This could be snow. This could be snow. That's true. Um, but um, it, this is the heart of winter. Um, and as the Gemara in Meseches Megillah notes, you know, people during winter tend to cuddle up together 
for warmth, right? And that's the Gemara mentions that that's why in the month of Teves, which is the month that we're about to enter, is the month in which Esther was brought into the palace. Hashem, God arranged it as such so that um, the relationship between her and Achashverosh would get, I guess, a jump start of sorts, okay. um, because it is a time of year when people like to cuddle for warmth, because it's so cold outside. Um, and I think that Shovavim, as a result, became a time to focus on relationships in general and the most intimate of relationships in particular. Um, and it's interesting that um, they're one of the customs that has become kind of uh, very common throughout, uh, particularly, I guess, um, more maybe yeshivish would be would be the word um, circles is that it's during Shovim is seen as a time in which people review the halachos, the laws of Tahar Samishbacha, family purity. Um, again, this stress on relationships and specifically the most intimate of relationships between husband and wife. And um, it's also why there, this also explains some of the other customs uh, regarding Shovim, which I'm not going to get into so much. Um, just because I'm trying to keep this a family-friendly, I guess, podcast. Um, so, um, perhaps that can be seen as uh, the understanding as to why um, this time of year is seen as a specifically unique time of year. Um, it's a time for us to work on our relationships. Um, it's a time for us to work most particularly on our most intimate of relationships, that of the relationship between spouses, but also, as we know, um, our relationship with God is seen as a relationship of a spouse, right? The Essentially, as the Rambam puts it, the entire book of Shir Hashirim, of the Song of Songs, is essentially an analogy in which God is the husband and we are the wife, which is interesting. Uh, just to note that God is the male in the relationship, right? Um, it's also interesting that in many languages that's the case, right? Um, People say God, they refer to God as he. Yes, Even though oftentimes. obviously God is... Is, uh, is non-binary. Um, <laughs> so, yes. Um, and, and that's... The, the, the simple understanding of that is that typically in a, in a relationship... In a the male aspect of the relationship is seen as the giving aspect of the relationship, and the female aspect of the relationship is seen as the receiving aspect of the relationship. And in terms of our relationship between us and God, God is the giver, and we are the receiver. We receive His bounty and His blessings and His gifts. That just made me think of the book slash movie. Which one? The Giver. Um. Yes. In fact, if you were part of my class uh, last year, we had a whole discussion about this when we were reading the book, The Giver, and how there's actually a turn in the very end of the book where, um, what's his Jonah. name? Jonah. Jonas. Jonas. Yeah. Where Jonas uh, be, turns from recipient to giver. Um, but I don't want to ruin the book for those who haven't read it yet. Oh. So, um, okay. We, might, we may have already done that. Okay. Anyhow. So, that is uh, perhaps one explanation of the this particular time of year, and perhaps one, I think, that can give meaning. You know, it, it allows us the opportunity to focus um, during this time of year on, on something in particular. Let's begin this week's Parsha, because this week's Parsha brings us to another fascinating discussion, um, and that is the documentary hypothesis. Are you familiar with the documentary hypothesis? Mm, I don't think so. Okay. So, let's begin, and then we'll talk about it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Parsha's, so, this week's Parsha is Parsha's Va'ira, um, and we saw in last week's Parsha that God appeared to Moshe at the burning bush. Um, by the way, I don't know if, if this will be meaningful for anyone else, but um, there is one of the Mishnayos that I was learning mentions the Chuldas Hasinaim, 
which I guess would be translated as the weasel of the sneb bush. Um, but if you understand that what that particular bush or tree, the sneb is, is a is what we in English would call a hedge. So the Khuldas Hasnaim would be translated as a hedge hawk. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, it's actually interesting that we call them hedgehog. You, you probably didn't even think about why would we call it a hedgehog, right? Um, but yeah, because it's, it's, it's spiny and thorny, like a hedge, like a bush. Um, and therefore, it is the hedgehog. Okay. Um, and that is the Choldas Hasnaim. Anyhow, a little aside. Um, so in last week's Parsha, God appeared to Moshe in the form or uh, at the sneh, at this bush, at this hedge, and he informed him that he is going to take the people out. Right? Now, there was a very fascinating discussion that occurred in last week's Parsha in which Moshe says to God, well, what should I tell them your name is? And God says to him, well, my name is I will be what I will be. Right. Um, and we'll we'll take a look in, at that in just a moment um, and what exactly that discussion was. But that actually raises the very interesting question or concept of the different names of God. Okay. So we find in the Torah different names that are used for God. Right. There is um, the four what we call the tetragrammaton. Right. The four letter name of Hashem that we do yeah, not okay, pronounce. Okay. As it is written, Yud Kevavke. In fact, we don't even, by custom, we don't even say the letters properly, right? So Yud K, not Yud and He, right? Yud Kevavke. Um, there is the name Aleph Dalid Nun Yud, right? Which is the way that we usually pronounce the name of Hashem. There's the the name Elohim, right? There is there are actually seven different names. Elohim is is uh is means din judgment right yes so we're going to see we're going to see that in the very first pasuk okay look okay at me. and that's why i'm <laughs> that's why i'm mentioning it anyhow so there are all of these different names that we have for god and in fact in this very first pasuk it is there's a very strange phrase it says the following vaidaber elohim el moshe so elohim spoke to Moshe, which we're going to translate for now as God, Vayomer Elav, and he said to him, Ani Hashem, and it uses the four-letter name of Hashem. So, it says, Elohim spoke to Moshe and said, I am a different name. That's a very strange thing to say, right? Okay. You would expect that he would, First of all, why do we have multiple names? But aside from that, it should say either Vaidaber Hashem al Moshe Vayomer Elav Ani Hashem. Hashem spoke to Moshe and said, "I am Hashem." Or it should say Vaidaber Elokim al Moshe Vayomer Elav Ani Elokim. Right. Right. Why the switch in names? So, as you mentioned, the different names of God have different meanings or different uh, implications, different right. um, nuances to them. And by the way, this is not something that you and I are unfamiliar with, right? For example, right? All of us have different names, which different people use for us. For example, some people call you Tanta, right? Right? Some people call you Miriam. Some people call me Bestie. Some people call you Bestie, <laughs> right? Some people call you Mrs. Cohen or, or Revitin Cohen, <laughs> right? Um, and... Each of those different names, by the way, you have a different reaction to, right? That is very true. And essentially, the name that you are being called by indicates the relationship of that person to you and you to that person and vice versa, right? right? So you can think about this with your parents, right? Right. We don't call our parents by their names. We call them, in my case, daddy and mommy, right? In as, my case as well. That's <laughs> true in your case, right? Um, so when my father gets called daddy, it means something very different than when he gets called by his name, right? Or by Rabbi Cohen. Or by Rabbi Cohen, right? It has a very different right. implication, right? Um, another thing that we discussed, by the way, in The Giver, um, and, and not our discussion right now, but, um, so that 
is the understanding of the different names of Hashem. They have different implications. They have different, it's kind of different nicknames you might think of, right? right. And in fact, in Halacha, they are actually referred to as Kinuyim, nicknames, um, uh, with the exception of Yod Kevavke, which is seen as the Shem Ha'etzem, the, that is, so to speak, God's actual name, as opposed to the others, which are seen as Kinuyim, which is not going to be our discussion so much right now. Here's what I do want to mention. Back to the documentary hypothesis. So the documentary oh, hypothesis, <laughs> which which developed during the Enlightenment, during the uh, during the late 17th, early 18th, and 19th, oh sorry, late 18th, early 19th uh, century, um, was this idea based on the fact that we find different names of Hashem. And actually, by the way, we oftentimes find different names of Hashem. Certain names are used particularly in certain svarim, in different of the Chumashim. For example, in Sefer Vayikra, almost never does the word Elohim appear, meaning Hashem. Right? It's always Hashem Yudke Vavke. Right? Um, in Bereshis, most of the time, it is in the form of Kel Shakai, another name. And so, therefore, this this um, the documentary hypothesis was, well, it must be that there were different histories that referred to their god by means of different names. And then some author came along and put together these different books into the form of the Bible. Um, and you have the J book and the E book. That's the way that they referred to them. And, um, and that's how you end up with different names used for God. Right? Okay. Now, the reason I mention this is because they were preceded by Chazal by hundreds, if not thousands of years, who already noticed this issue. Wait, who are they? Who is they? The Enlightenment, the Maskilim. Oh, oh, oh okay. Um, uh, they're early biblical critics. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's, that, that was the, the, really the origin of biblical criticism. Um, and so... They, this had been noticed by Chazal, by our sages, and we, in our belief of Torah min HaShamayim, that Torah is God-given, obviously have to gain a different understanding of why these different names are being used. And so, therefore, we have explanations for the different meanings. And in fact, we understand that whenever the Torah is switching a name or using a different name of Hashem, it's trying to teach you something. It's trying right. to indicate something to you. So, let's take a look over here. It says, Vayidaber Elohim El Moshe, that Elohim spoke to Moshe. Now, as you mentioned, the name Elohim implies the God of Din, of strict justice or judgment, right? That is usually the name. In fact, the word Elohim is used in the Torah to reference a judge, right? It says, Elohim lo tikalel, do not curse a judge. In that case, it's not Hashem, it's re actually referring to a judge. We refer to that as a shemchol, a profane or non-holy name, meaning okay. it's not referring to God. So, um, you, with that understanding, we understand that at least what it's saying, what it's saying initially in the pasuk, is we are being given kind of a description of, so to speak, God's mood, right? Interesting. And if we take a look at the end of last week's parsha. We understand the segue into this week's Parsha, because at the end of last week's Parsha, Moshe returns to God after having come to Paro and having offered him this opportunity to let the people go, right? He offered him, as it, you know, is put in the Godfather, right? A deal he can't refuse, except he didn't realize that it was a, an offer he couldn't refuse. He didn't realize that yet. Um, but, you know, this very kind offer, we'll just take a three-day vacation, which, by the way, we'll have to discuss when we get to Parshas Bishalach. but it may be that originally that was the plan, even from Hashem's perspective, that they were supposed to take kind of a, a, a Shabbaton out in the desert, and then they would return for the rest. Remember how we discussed last year that the exile was actually shortened from 400 years to 210 years. So it may be that actually the intent was initially that they just go out for this, you know, um, revival Shabbaton, um, where they get re-inspired and then go back and then 
however many years later, have a proper exodus. Uh, that is one approach. But anyhow, Moshe made this offer to Paro, and Paro's response was, first of all, he said, I don't know who Hashem, the name that you used, interestingly, if you look in the Pasuk, Mi Hashem Asher Bekolo. I don't know who that Hashem guy that you're referring to is, which is his way of saying, I, I, I've heard of other names used for God, but I don't recognize that particular one, which we can discuss in just, a, you know, as we develop this idea further. Um, but we're not letting you out. And not only are we not letting you out, but things are going to get much worse. Right? And that's what happened in the end of last week's Parsha. And we discussed this a little bit last week with the idea of things becoming worse right before, you know, the, they get better. right before they get better. So Moshe comes back to God and he complains at the end of last week's parsha, and he says to he says to Hashem, he says, "Lama zeshalachtani? Why did you send me? Right? What was the purpose of this? From umeaz basi al paro ledaber From when I started speaking to Paro in your name, heira laamazeh. All that happened was he started treating these people even worse. Right? Why did you send me? And that brings us to this week's parsha, and one of the approaches. In the, that's actually the Midrashic approach, which Rashi, interestingly, is not so happy with in terms of reading the verses. But this is the Midrashic approach to understanding the beginning of this week's Parsha, is that God said to him, uh, excuse me? <laughs> Who do you think you're talking to? Well, not exactly. He, what, the way that Chazal put it is, um, based on the next Pasuk, is, you know, I really wish Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov were still around. You know, because at least when I was dealing with them, <laughs> at least when I was dealing with them, they wouldn't complain the way that you're complaining. And we actually discussed this a little bit in the context of Abraham, how Abraham's tests were specifically that, that God would guarantee something, so to speak, and then it would seem to not come to fruition. And his challenge was to be able to bear through that, Right. So Elohim spoke to Moshe, Vayomer Elav, and he said to him, Ani Hashem, I am Hashem, which we oftentimes find used throughout the Torah as Hashem's way of saying, I'm the boss, meaning I have the power to either punish or reward. So, for example, we oftentimes find that the Torah will warn us against something, right? And then say, Ani Hashem, right? And that's the Torah's way of saying, don't do that because I'm I am the ultimate master who has the power to deal out punishment. Or the Torah will say something, a, a promise, um, and say, Ani Hashem, which is its way of saying, I'm the one who can fulfill that promise and bring that reward. And so, therefore, God is saying to Moshe, Ani Hashem, don't worry. As he continues in the next verses, I made a promise to Abraham, to Yitzchak, and to Yaakov, and I'm going to fulfill that promise, right? And it's interesting that specifically the name Hashem Yodke Vavke should indicate this, because what that name actually is, if you think about it, is if you were to take the three Hebrew words, Haya, Hove, and Yiyah. So if you were to take those three words and superimpose them on each other, you would actually end up with the name of Hashem. Three of those words, Hayahoveh, two of those words, sorry, are three letters. The third one is four letters. So we're going to shift the three letters on top of each other. Hayah is Hey Yud Hey, Hoveh is Hey Vav Hey. So we have two Hey's on top of each other, right? And the Yud of Hayah would be covered over by the Vav of Hoveh. And now put the word yiyah on top of that, and all that changes is a yud at the beginning, and you end up with yud and hey and vav. The yud from yiyah is again swallowed up by the vav and hey. So if you were to superimpose those three words on top of each other, you would end up with yud ke vavke. So in other words, since we cannot say this with human tongue, we cannot pronounce three different words at the same time, we have a word that is an amalgamation of the three. So when we refer to God by that name, what we're saying is that God was, is, and will be at the same time. Now, to the human mind, that doesn't make any sense. Right. Right? But 
we understand minimally that what it means is that God is out of the bounds of time. He is not limited by time, which incidentally is one of the very simple answers to the question of predestination and free will, which we've raised a couple times, but have skirted around. We talked about it a little bit last week in terms of quantum mechanics. Um, By the way, now that you've seen Oppenheimer, does that help you gain any any understanding? Um, Thankfully, they didn't go too much into the... Um, so, but science there. <laughs> um, the the simplest understanding to that question is that the question is built on a fallacy of human logic, right? Because human logic has past and future as two different things, and if past and future are two different things, how can you both know the future and still be in the past, right? How can you have both coexist? But our understanding of God is this idea that he is not bound by time. Now, you're going to say that makes no sense. You're right. This is the ineffable name. There's a reason we don't pronounce this name, which, by the way, is what we're taught in last week's Parsha. This is my name forever. Chazal in Mesachis Pesachim understand the word Le'olam is written without a vav as Le'alein. You have to hide this name, meaning don't pronounce it the way that it's written. Right? So... You're right. It is an incomprehensible concept from the perspective of human logic. It doesn't make any sense, right? But Mm -hmm. for that matter, how the infinite and finite coexist also doesn't make any sense, right? right? I don't know, right? And I also can't pronounce three different words at the same time, right? But yet I have the name of Hashem that is all three words at the same time. And for that reason... It indicates God's ability to to fulfill his word, right? Because if someone promises something and then is not able to follow through on that promise, the only possibility is that they did not foresee the future or they were lying at the time, right? right? But (laughs) assuming they weren't lying, generally, why do people not follow through on their promises? Because something happens that prevents them from doing so. And being non-omniscient, right, we didn't see that coming, right? (laughs) Sometimes your husband sees it coming. Sometimes. Like when I take on too much and I'm too tired to get it all done. Um, Yes, but that's not omniscience. That's just a third-person objective perspective. But, right, You're not omniscient? No. Um, (laughs) Phew. By the way, I, I just want to share with you a, a beautiful idea that I heard from um, Rabbi Noach Orlowick, which is an idea that I've, I've shared with people a number of different times. And, and it's just such a, a beautiful uh, way of describing uh, the reality. Um, he said, there is only one supercomputer that runs this universe, and I have no idea how it works. And that, that was his way of saying, I don't understand God. Like, sometimes there are questions, right? Sometimes God is, is you know. I actually think you, I think you mentioned that on the podcast right. before. So I, I, it, I should give, really... give credit where credit is due. Um, that was Rabbi Orlovic. So, um, no, I am not omniscient. I do not know how the supercomputer works. Um, I just sometimes have a little bit of a third-person perspective or objective perspective. Um, so back to what we were saying. When Hashem says, Ani Hashem, and is saying, I have the ability to follow through, what he's saying is, don't think that something's going to happen between now and then that I didn't foresee. After all, I am past, present, and future all at the same time. Right? That doesn't there, happen to me. There is nothing that I don't foresee, so to speak. Right? Um, okay. And he continues in the next Pasuk, Va'ira el Avraham el Yitzchak ve'al Yaakov bekel shakai, or I appear to Avraham and Yitzchak and Yaakov using the name kel shakai. Now, he did appear to Avraham and Yitzchak and Yaakov. Rashi notes this. If you look in Beratius, that's not the only name that is used. It'll save Ayomer Hashem. However, when he promises to them, he uses the name Kel Shakai. When he appears to each individually, Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and promises them the children or the land that he they are going to have, 
he never uses the Ushmi Hashem lo nodati lahem. I did not, now it doesn't say I didn't inform them of that name. It says I did not um, not um, be informed to them would be that there's no really good English translation of the word nodati. Nodati is to appear, I guess, in, in yourself as opposed to be shown. Okay. Um, so he, what he's saying is that I never appeared to them using this concept. I never demonstrated to them this concept of having promised and fulfill it, which is where Chazal, our sages, understand what I was just saying before, that, so to speak, one way to understand the beginning of this Parsha is that God is complaining, so to speak, and is saying, oh, come on, I really wish those guys were around because they didn't complain when things weren't going the way that they thought they, it should go. But um, that's not how Rashi explains it. Rashi explains it, that what Hashem is saying is, I made a promise to Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, I am going to fulfill that promise, right? And it's almost like he's placating Moshe, right? Right. Um, I'm going to fulfill that promise. And as he says in the next Pasuk, in Pasuk Dalet, Vigam hakimosi esprisi itam, I have established my covenant with them, that I'm going to give them the land of Canaan, which is the land in which they dwelt. Notice the particular word that is used here. Ger. Because what is the word that is used to describe the 400 years of exile? Your children will be a ger for 400 years. A stranger. Right? A stranger. A, uh, someone who is not settled in the land. Which hints to this idea that we can calculate the exile as beginning even during their lifetime. Right. Okay. Um, and, and we discuss this a little bit in the beginning of Parsha's Vayeshev. How Yaakov wanted to settle. And God, so to speak, said, no. No settling for you. Right? Because he cannot settle. We need it that the Avos, that the forefathers, are only Gerim, are only, so to speak, wandering in the land. Vigam Anishamati, and I also have heard, so not only did I make this promise, but also I have heard as Nakas B'nai Yisrael, the outcry of the Jewish people, Asher Mitzrayim Ma'avidim Osam, that the Egyptians are enslaving them. Now, that's a very strange turn of phrase, if you think about it. Can you tell me what that means? The outcry of the Jewish people that the Egyptians are enslaving them. Right? Ever thought about that? Now, fortunately, having worked with elementary school students (laughs) and seen their terrible writing, that's what it sounds like, right? It almost, I guess I just assumed it was like my bad understanding of Hebrew. So uh, Rashi actually explains, and, and if, you're, if you're not paying attention, you could totally miss this. Rashi actually, actually, actually explains that is what they are crying. They are crying that the Egyptians are enslaving us. Right? So I have heard the outcry of the Jewish people, which is that the Egyptians are enslaving them. And therefore, I remember my covenant. Um, not going to get so much into that issue of remembrance, but that's a whole fascinating discussion in and of itself relating to Rosh Hashanah and what the concept of remembrance in the context of God means. But... Lachain, therefore, for Rosh Hashanah podcast. <clears throat> therefore, God tells Moshe, "Amor levnei Yisrael, tell the Jewish people, Ani Hashem, I am Hashem." Now, I want to go back for a moment to last week's parsha when Moshe asks God, right? When they ask me what is His name, what should I tell them? Okay. Right, and God says, right, Eyeh Asher Eyeh, I will be what I will be. What kind of answer is that? I don't know. Right. So 
The simple understanding, which is actually true halachically, is that that name, Aleph K Yod K, is actually one of the names of Hashem. Oh. Right? Um, and therefore, you should not write it and throw it in the garbage. Right? And that was his answer. His answer was, that is my name. My name is Aleph K Yod K. Right? That's one understanding. Um, however, Rashi, based on the Medrash, gives a very interesting interpretation of that phrase. And Rashi says that what it means is, I will be with them now just as I will be with them in the future. And in fact, you'll notice that the second time that he says it, that Hashem says that name to Moshe, he only says it one time, right? Which Rashi, based on the Medrash, explains that Moshe said, wait, 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 one second. There's going to be more of these? There's going to be more exiles? Hold on one second. We're, we're, we're dealing just enough with what we've got here. Thank you. Right? Daya letzara b'shaita. Right? We have enough with the difficulties that we have now. Let's not mention anything about difficulties in the future. Right? But the other possible understanding of that phrase is that God is introducing to him, himself to Moshe as the actor in history. Which is a very interesting idea. I actually saw an essay from Rabbi Sachs this past week where he talks about this idea, and I'm going to kind of adopt the idea. The Kuzuri mentions the following. You know, it's very interesting when, when we see, um, when God introduces himself at Har Sinai, at Mount Sinai, with the first of the Ten Commandments, right? He says, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am the Lord, right? Who what? You would assume if the Lord is introducing himself, he would say, I'm the creator of heaven and earth, right? But that's not what he says. He says, Asher sicha Who took you out from the land of Egypt? So the Kuzari asks, I don't understand. What about the creator of heaven and earth? And the Kuzari gives a fascinating um, answer to that question. Um, and I'm going to build on it um, with an idea from the Sefer Mitzvot Katan as well. Um, the Kuzari says that God was introducing himself as the, as the one who took them out of Egypt so that they would see that he's not, in, in the Kuzari's word, the God of the philosophers, some abstract first cause that has no interest in the universe in what's going on. Wow. Because if God is creator of heaven and earth, right, in in kind of the, to borrow a term, the, the, the watchmaker, right, the one who, right, he, he's the one who made the watch and now just lets it go, right? So... Doesn't feel relevant to me. It's not relevant, right? <clears throat> what God is saying is, no, I am Hashem, Asher Hosei, Sicha, Me'eretz Mitzrayim. I am involved in history. Right? And more than just involved in history, Asher Hotzei Sicha means I took you out. I'm involved in your history, in your story. And that's why God introduces himself in that way. The Sefer Mitzvot Katan takes this one step further, and he says that what God is really hinting to is the fundamental belief in an ultimate redemption. Just as I took you out then, which we discussed, like the days I took you out from Egypt, I will show you, right? I will show you wonders like those days, right? God, just as he did then, will ultimately redeem us. I saw, I saw um, this idea with regard to like praising God when we say, when we say tefillos, where we're saying praises of God, it's, it, it gives us encouragement by way of saying, like, you know, God made the beautiful world that we live in. You know, you look at these marvels of the, of nature, and when you praise God for making them, you say, oh, God has that much power. He could also do wondrous things for me in my life and for the Jews as a whole. Right. And as Ramban actually points out in the in the end of Parshas Bo, so many of our mitzvahs, are Zechar Litzias Mitzrayim. They commemorate the Exodus. Why do we make such a big deal about the commemoration of the Exodus? Well, one idea is that's the when God initiated his relationship with us, right? However, 
And the other idea is that that's when God showed his hand in history. Right? Throughout the entire book of Bereshus, there are no open miracles. Can you name one open miracle in the book of Bereshus? The, in the fact, text. In the text. Not sure, like there in, are Midrashim right. and, and things of that sort. I never thought but of in that. the text, there are no open miracles. The first appearance of open miracles, the closest you get to an open miracle in, in there is that Sarah, at an extreme old age, has a child. Okay, not such an open miracle, right? I mean, but in today's day and age, it would be an open miracle, but sure, things were different. Sure. Um, I mean, people lived a lot longer. So. Yes, that's true. But, right, you understand what I mean by it's not a direct defiance of nature, indirect defiance of nature, right? Right, I keep thinking of things, but they're all not, like, straight in the text. Like, we're taught that Rivka didn't have a uterus, right? Sarah, I'll say. Sarah and Rivka. Yeah. Right, but those none of those are explicit in the text. Right, it's right. only when we get to this point of the text and this point, so to speak, in Jewish history that God starts performing open miracles, right? And right. as Ramban puts it, that's God's way of showing I created nature in the first place. I can do with it as I wish. I can change it, right? And we discuss this a little bit in the context of Hanukkah, right? How nature is really just God's will as it is most often. Right, right. But it's no more or less miraculous than something that is counter-natural, right? We discussed that in the context of Hanukkah. Um, Go back and listen to that episode if you haven't listened to it yet. Sure. Fantastic. So what Hashem is telling Moshe in last week's parsha, and what he is telling Moshe here when he says, tell the Jewish people, Ani Hashem, is he is telling them, tell them that I am the actor in history, right? I am not some... God who just created this world and let things go as they may. Which is, by the way, how uh, many of the ancients viewed gods, right? Take, for example, you know, Greek mythology or Roman mythology or Egyptian mythology, for that matter, right? Which, by the way, uh, shout out to Rick Reardon, <laughs> who gave uh, the uh, at least some exposure to different mythologies to elementary school kids. I, I doubt you're familiar with who I'm talking about. I am not. And the reason you're not is because Rick Reardon wrote a series of books, uh, including Percy Jackson and the Olympians, which probably doesn't mean anything to you. But to kids nowadays, probably means a very lot. Um, and it's not only nowadays. It's been it's been around for, for a decade or so. Uh, you're going to be old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he, 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 you know, so he introduced, because those books are very involved in Greek mythology and Roman mythology, and the Cain series is involved in Egyptian mythology. But um, he gave some, at least, understanding of mythology uh, to, to elementary school kids. But be that as it may, <clears throat> if we take a look at those mythologies, their understanding of the gods were these powerful, creative creatures who had no interest, really, in what was going on down here in this puny like little world. Builds a Lego set and then goes off right. to ride his bike. Wait, and then sometimes, this is how <laughs> the... Wait, wait, exactly, that's set. how they viewed it in mythology. And sometimes he comes and he decides he wants to, you know, he's upset and he wants to stomp on his Lego set <laughs> to express his anger. And so, therefore, he brings cataclysms to the world. And, you know, we try and placate them by offering them, you know, good food and drink and whatever, and, and women, right, in, in mythology, right? So that they, you know, they leave us alone, essentially, right? That was the ancient mythological view of what God was. And what God is telling Moshe and the Jewish people at this point is, that's not me. That's not God with a capital G, right? And by the way, that was the God that Paro said in last week's Parsha he doesn't understand, right? Paro in previous has... Is his understanding of God is, is this myth mythological God that sure. you just Maybe you about. have the Canaanite God, right, who is active in the land of Canaan, or Israel, right? Which, by the way, was another component to mythology, this idea that gods were local. They only had power in certain places, right? And what God showed is, no, I am worldwide, right? 
which is part of what we as Jews live our lives and try and teach, right? The idea of monotheism is the idea that our God is not just our God, but he is God. Right. Right? And so Hashem is telling them, I am the one who has, who is intimately involved in human, in human history, right? And actively involved in human history and will bring things ultimately to where they need to go. So let's do a quick review, what we've seen, and we'll wrap it up with that. What we've seen today... I just want to say that I have gotten complaints that the podcast is too short. For real. Okay. <laughs> people say they want to hear you go on all night. Uh, who are these people, and are they my wife? <laughs> no, no, no. They're actual people that aren't me. Um, the only complaint I ever got about the podcast is they wish it would go on longer. But okay, okay. if we must. Um, so, what we've discussed tonight is the concept of Shohavim, how this is a time in which we take the opportunity to work and develop our intimate relationships. And specifically, it's also the opportunity to develop that intimate relationship with God. And that's how God introduces himself in this week's Torah portion, beginning in last week's, but specifically in this week's Torah portion, in responding to Moshe's complaint, he says to Moshe, I have all of these different names, perhaps, but the name that I'm talking with you right now, using, is the name Hashem, the yud Vavke, as God, the one who is involved in history, one who is the creator of being, right? That's the other meaning of that name, is that it means is. It's just that in English, we don't really have a good word for being. So... It just is, mm. right? But um, and um, and he is reminding Moshe of how the Avos Avraham Yitzchak and Yaakov, how our forefathers were able to bear with patience. By the way, did you know that's the original meaning of the word patience? Why do we call someone who goes to a doctor a patient? Because they're supposed to be patient while they wait. Well, so <laughs> I remember um, growing up, we used the Kaiser system in LA, and they had signs, patient parking only. And every time we would go to the doctor, my father would make this joke. Oh, wait, so if you're impatient, you can't park here, right? <laughs> I, could, I could hear your father making that joke. <laughs> so, um, but no, the reason we refer to them as a patient is that the word patient originally meant one who bears pain. Oh. Right? That's yeah. what the word patient means. And that's what patience is, right? If you think about it, patience is the ability to sit with something that is uncomfortable, right? That's what patience is. So he's reminding Moshe of the patience that Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov were able to show, right? That even though Hashem promised them things and they didn't seem to come true, right? But they believed ultimately in that, in his word, and he is telling Moshe to tell B'nai Israel to tell the Jewish people that he is an actor on the world stage. He is the one who guides things to where they need to go. He's not just the original creator who left things to be as they are, but rather he is intimately and actively involved in our lives. Wow, thank you so much.